Welcome to episode 89 of Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, uh, Yuri Brito, and it's been a little season since we've uh, done a podcast, but uh, I, I'm always delighted to do a podcast with Dustin Messer, my partner in crime, someone who, with whom I, I share a lot in common, but a brother that I've loved from afar for quite some time. We've had a chance recently due to a... Um, a little mix up on my flight to stop and have breakfast in Dallas, Texas. And that was just an absolute blast. Uh, Dustin Messer, good to see you again, my brother. Good to see you there, steak and eggs waiting in Texas anytime you're stuck here. I will be there speedily, my friend. <laughs> we have uh, talked about all sorts of issues. Uh, both of us are happy generalists in our interest. We are connoisseurs of all sorts of things. Um, We're developing tastes for lots of other things. But we really enjoy writing. It's one of the things that binds both of us together. It has bound us together over this last decade. It has been in many ways, you're one of my um, two-go guys on this issue because we both treasure the process of writing. But writing, like any good thing, is an art, something that needs to be developed. And probably like you, I do get constant questions, maybe not constant, but at least once or twice a month about, hey, tell me about your habits of writing, um, you and I enjoy writing quite a bit. I try to publish, you know, between 500 to 1500 words a day for essays or for just Facebook posts. I am a popularist at heart. I love to popularize things. I don't, I don't have many original thing uh, genes in my bones, but I love popularizing ideas. And it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic thing for me. When people ask you the question, um, why do you enjoy writing? What's your first reaction to that question? Well, for me, writing and trying to figure out what I think about a topic, what scripture teaches on a topic, what the great tradition of Christian thought thinks on a topic, it sort of go hand in glove, you know, um, I'm at heart a preacher, and so I manuscript all of my sermons, and it, that really comes through there, which is, you know, you can outline a sermon and it's it's that that works to sort of help prompt you what to say in the pulpit but there's something about manuscripting manuscripting a sermon which really forces your hand to say what do i really think about this passage what does this passage really teach it doesn't let you take any shortcuts and likewise um whether it's a certain political issue or whatever it is a, a doctrinal essay writing is a way for me just to think, you know, and if, if the things I wrote got burned the next day, I, I'm sure there are exceptions, but I think for the most part, it's true. It would still be time well spent for me to write just for the exercise of writing and thinking more clearly on an issue. Hmm. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm definitely uh, drinking the whiskey you're putting down there. I think it's. I think that's. Uh, I think the heart of it, in some ways, I've always viewed writing as forming my imagination and sort of challenging my categories. I think human discourse is something that can get very monotonous if we are not constantly thinking in fresh ways and in fresh categories, translating old ideas into. Um, you know, popular ways of thinking about these old ideas. There is, of course, a trend in, in writing where people are sort of content with the kind of philosophizing that only attracts a certain group of people. Mm -hmm. And I've always been 
um, skeptical about that approach because I, I think when you write for uh, niche groups, you have it's it's a great virtue. Some people have that skill, but I always find that the philosophies that are most easily embraced in the public square are those where the writer has sought to make ideas as clear and um, as clear as they possibly can. So when you think about the process of writing, where does the concept of popularizing idea enter into the, the mindset for you? Well, for me, you know, it's how do we apply, of course, it's on scripture, you get, and this isn't original to me, this is a very sort of Westminster Confession sort of principle of the general, general uh, equity of the law. In the Old Testament, you get the law sort of spelled out, you know, you build a little fence on your roof to make sure no one falls off. And then in the New Testament, you don't get those exact case laws, but you do get love God, love neighbor, and you're applying what does it look like to protect the well-being and health of my neighbor in this environment? So it may be that you put a cover over your pool or something like that, rather than put a fence on your roof. In the same way, I think about popularizing as applying the spirit of, it could be uh, something old, right? It could be you're reading Augustine and you think, I think this logic lends itself well to this or that debate, but it may just be um, you know, experts in sociology. I'm uh, like you for uh, for a little bit because of you. In a, a lot of ways, you invited me to write something for Capering Commentaries. First thing I wrote uh, for sort of a public audience, and since then I've written a lot of essays. Right now, I'm working on sort of a, a bigger book project, and the bigger book project was really trying to po popularize sociology, sort of modern research in a way, which is a bit different for essays I try to bring in, you know, a specific theologian or tradition and apply it. So I think it's something more than just, I'm going to say exactly what this other person said, but in a sim more simple vernacular. Rather, it's if this presupposition and logic is true in this area, how might it fit into that area and not to turn the tables too much but i think you're really good at this popularizing how do you go about thinking um uh, as you're writing i'm going to bring the grass down at a level where the sheep can get to it how do you sort of think through this well i mean i confess i i cheat on this issue quite a bit usually what i do is i have set up myself over the years to hear questions from people and I have accumulated, like, for example, right now, I think I have around 40 to 50 questions that I, people have asked me in the, in the regards, theological issues, pastoral issues. And I always feel that when there are, when three or four of those questions harmonize, therefore I have a topic that I think the people are interested in hearing from. I am a strong apologist for the virtual popularization because I, like you, I have been in the academic world for a very long time. We both have completed our doctoral works. We have set among academic men, and I think that they have a particular function to, to have in the academic world. But the people, perhaps you and I share the same sentiment, the people who have most affected me are the people, are the academicians who have been very consistent in popularizing their ideas, yeah. which I think, honestly, it's a very reformational principle. I mean, my favorite, um, my, my favorite professor of all time was John Frame. It's hard 
to read John Frame and not conclude by saying, this man has, has definitely provided something for the evangelical world that other academicians will never be able to do. John Frame's approach has always been that of bringing the deep existential questions to the forefront and making theology accessible and making theology something that is desirable, when for a long time it really hasn't among the evangelical population. And so for me, when I think of the process of writing, I think about finding ways and finding um, a, a corridor to run into where I bump into all sorts of people who are asking the same questions. And so that's a little bit of my process. And so I take the questions people are asking, I take the questions congregants have asked me, and I find that sometimes it's, some of these questions are questions that a hundred people are asking. And yeah. so I, I just tackle it. And my magic ingredient in all the, this process is the ingredient of editing. Yeah. I edit things, I re-edit, and I, I edit things seven times because seven is a perfect number. So I, the, by the seventh time, I feel relatively um, satisfied with the product. And, uh, and by the way, for, you know, this is one of those things where Jordan Peterson had a talk yesterday when I listened to on YouTube where he talked about how the process of human productivity is most embraced by articulate men mm-hmm. and articulate women. So productive people generally are articulate human beings. But he said that never happens naturally with most people. The most productive people are people who have delved into the grammar of life, the vocabulary of life. In other words, they have read so that they can bring their vocabulary to a different level than it was before. And so they read, and by reading, it allows them to communicate in some ways to Sister Sue at the Missouri Synod Church and Grandma Betty at the local independent Baptist church. And I tell you, Dustin, to me, that is the, the, the dream come true of a writer. When I can get, you know, a, a sweet Lutheran lady who has a very high developed view of the sacraments, for example, and another independent fundamentalist Baptist lady who has never thought much about the nature of the sacraments, but I find, but they find some kind of cohesiveness in what I'm writing. And when I reach those two diverse audiences, honestly, I feel utterly satisfied. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, in that uh, regard, there is a simplicity on the near side of complexity and on the far side. In other words, there did doctors say one time, the difference between a first year med student and a last year med student is a first year med student can explain what the liver does to their professor. A last year med student can explain what the liver does to a first grader. So you could think of, you have a complex issue, problem, concept you're trying to convey. There's a simplistic way you could articulate it, which is you really haven't done the hard work, as you say, of getting into the grammar and logic of the issue. You haven't immersed yourself. You're still on the near side of the complexity. But then once you've waded through the really deep waters, you are able to explain what the liver does to a first grader. You're able to say, I understand this so well that my speech isn't going to be up here to where only, you know, a freshman in college could understand it, but it's going to be down here to where maybe a, a sixth grader could understand it. Or as you say, a fundamentalist Baptist person and a high Lutheran person or whatever, will both be able to get at it because you've done the hard work of pushing through. And that's why I think popularizers, and, you know, I'd love to hear another question I, I have for you or just who are the great writers and, and popularizers alive today, but as I think about the quality that makes them up, 
they aren't people who know less than the experts. In some ways, they're people who know more and are able to do the, the hard work of expressing those complex ideas clearly and simply. Who I, and I'll, I'll share mine as well, but who are some folks that you read right now who you think are doing this sort of writing in a really excellent way? Um, I got to tell you, in, in the academic world, I have really come to love uh, Kevin Van Hooser. I think he's done a, a good job. I think he is somebody who is very um, creative in his theological writing, but someone who is not too too distant. He's done some some practical work for pastors that I've really uh, gained from uh, quite a bit. I think uh, John Frame, of course, is just a, a really gifted um, thinker in that regard. In fact, I. I, when I was at RTS a few months ago, I had a chance to spend some time with him. And one of the things he said that post his retirement from RTS, his desire has been to take a lot of his bigger works and make small popular level accessible work. And I think he's produced, uh, Dustin, probably, I don't know, six to 10 books since he's retired. Wow. And they're all very accessible. They deal on uh, creation. They deal on issues of answering questions from skeptics. That kind of work, I think, can be really helpful. Peter Lightheart has uh, does a great job at this. Of course, he's a machine at publication, so he's the kind of guy who will do um, a lot of very academic work. So he'll do one of the largest commentaries in Revelation, all of history, civilization, and then he'll publish a little tiny book of less than 100 pages on the Ten Commandments. Real digestible, really accessible. I think that's the kind of thing that uh, is very fruitful. But just one more note here. In that regard, I love that um, I love that God has sort of taken me through this journey of doctoral dissertation work. It has given me all the tools to write at, at an academic level with all the necessary footnotes, but it has served as a springboard for a lot of popular stuff that I keep writing, right? And I think in some ways your doctoral work is kind of like that. Peter told me that Dr. Leiher said the same thing. His his work on baptism, which was his doctoral dissertation has been the springboard for everything he's done since. And um, I think that initial academic foundation sort of establishes the roots so that we know where we're going and we know how to use that kind of work in a way that's accessible to the popular um, popular audience, which I think is where most evangelicals find themselves, right? Um, I have several classical teachers in my congregation. They're lovely people. But when I go there, I think sometimes the pastor's greatest fault to think that that they're their primary audience. Yeah. And that's rarely if ever the case. So how about you? Where, where do you, uh, so I mentioned John Frame, Van Hooser, Lightheart, um, Douglas Wilson, who is very uh, uh, a provocative writer, very witty, a very um, a wordsmith. It, it's hard to read Doug and not feel just immensely um, overwhelmed by his ability to deal with language and to convey ideas. Those are a couple of options. How about you, brother? Yeah, you know, it's funny because what, whatever, you know, you read Doug Wilson, sometimes you may agree, disagree, whatever. It is incredible if you don't read his blog for a while and then you just dip in on a random article. Uh, it's incredible he's doing that consistent and that level of work, just at a grammatical level, the use of language and so forth. Uh, I think Rod Dreher, who has been a foe oh, yeah. in some ways, has even said, man, it is, uh, it, it's a remarkable thing, his, his use of the language. So I'd, I'd, I'd second that and all those you said. Jake Metter at Mere Orthodoxy is yeah. 
is an incredible writer. And again, someone on a very different end of the political spectrum than Doug and someone you may disagree with with his takes at time. And, and Jake's edited my work before, a phenomenal editor, which I think speaks to something you said, you know, uh, basically any good essay could be made great if it was cut by 20% in the right places. Um, those would be some. Uh, Russ Dalpit is is really a gold standard. Um, there are others I'm I'm sure I'm missing, but the folks who you know Steve Martin in his autobiography, the comedian. I need to read that by the way. I, I've oh, heard you mention about him before. I'd love to get a hold of that. Yeah, yeah. They, this is a line I've I've used uh, before, but uh, Steve Martin uh, said that anybody can be great. Any artist can be great. Um, because he said being great is kind of a fluke and, you know, you and I have both written things that, uh, maybe we wouldn't call great, but like have just gotten a ton of traction, um, and been, been sort of passed uh, everywhere. It's kind of a fluke, you know, you don't know when that's going to happen. You maybe didn't even work that hard on it, but it just sort of does really well. And Steve Martin says, that's kind of how the life of an artist is. Sometimes you're just phenomenal and it's, you know, a, a mystery. He said, the mark of a, of a great artist isn't their ability to be great, it's their ability to be good, to be consistently good, good time after time after time. And uh, he talks about quitting stand-up comedy because he felt himself able to be great on occasion, but not good consistently. When you read a writer, I think you were one of them uh, who is consistently good, uh, who you just know every time you tune in, it's not just gonna be the same take repackaged but it's going to be thoughtful and articulate, man. That's the that's what we're all striving towards, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I obviously feel the same way about you as well. Just one one final issue. I think it's um one that uh, both of us as pastors need to sort of contemplate. It's the uh, the element of of courage in writing. The element of courage, the, the virtue of, of courage. Um, there's a lot of that, of course, in in, in Greek literature. I I find that writing is one way where you can immediately gauge the nature of, of people and their reactions and all that. But I, I, what, what I've discovered over the years is that in the beginning, especially in my early days when uh, I didn't have the, the kind of platform that I have now, um, in the early days, I've always felt this urge to be the kind of writer that um, seduced people without hurting their feelings. Hmm. And I have obviously given that up for a very, very long time. And I think that people out there, especially in the kind of age we live in, are looking for courageous writers. Yeah. They're not looking for pugilistic writers. There are some of them out there who, you know, there are the Ann Coulters out there who, who make a living off of, of punching little children, uh, you know, yeah. uh, rhetorically and in, in writing. But I think people in general are looking for courageous writers who can summarize their sentiments without the cliches, without the memes, but articulate in a way that's coherent, cogent. But the element of courage is there, you know, there's like, yeah, that's what I've been wanting to say for a very long time. And you've 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 summarized that. Can you talk a little bit about the, the element of courage in your own writing, Dustin? And uh, if, you, if you thought through that category. Yeah, you know, I haven't exactly, but I, I do very much. And in my preaching, I think we've mentioned Peter Lightheart several times. Peter talks a lot about 
in preaching, there is a temptation to have such an apologetic flair and apologetics in the sense of, you know, persuading someone to the faith that it can make the preaching act come off as, uh, you know, like C.S. Lewis may say, God is in the dock, which is to say God is the one on trial and these people listening are the ones who are going to either clear him or uh, disbelieve in him, find him guilty. And, and in actual fact, of course, the preaching uh, event is, is the opposite. It's the people in the dock. It's the people on trial. And God has this word over them of judgment and the law, but of vindication and grace in Christ. Uh, mm. Writing is similar. I very much hear what you're saying about you want to be persuasive, but you also want to not just hedge your bets so much that you wind up saying a lot about nothing. The way I think through that is, the two errors are, are one, you could take the strongest argument for the opposite side of what you're trying to say, and you could sort of just dance around your disagreement with it. I think that's not good. The other side might be you take the weakest expression of the argument you're against, and you totally dunk on it, and you own it, and you, as you say, maybe a bit pugilistic. I don't think that's good. I think the goal is to take the absolute best argument uh, that you disagree with, express it in a way that those who hold that position would recognize and agree with it. And then you, to the best of your ability, decisively, clearly, and unambiguously show why that position is wrong. To me, that's just the ethics of writing, that you're really taking the best position to the contrary and trying to be sort of clear on, on why you're against that. That's a lot harder to do. It is so much easier. And I'm on Twitter, you know, it's really easy on Twitter to sort of dunk on people yeah. who, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're expressing their opinion really poorly or they're not thinking very clearly, but to go to someone uh, who expresses it well and clearly and argue against them I think is a, a much more helpful exercise and, and more courageous because it also opens you up to, to criticism. I'll just say, we've talked about this before. I think the very first thing I wrote for Kyperian, I misquoted someone, I forget the name of the guy, but he wrote for some magazine, it wasn't the Washington Post, but some kind of big magazine. And I misquoted him and the quote, I didn't do it intentionally. The quote still worked. It was fine. It still expressed his, the flair or the flavor of his opinion and so forth. It was like a word off. And, uh, you know, he came back and was like, no, that's not what I said. I said this. And of course I can say, well, it's the same meaning, but at that point, you know, it takes courage to put yourself out there uh, and go against the best articulator of a position because look, they could come back and uh, they could articulate well why you're in the wrong, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this kind of sharpening, a neutral sharpening, I think can be very fruitful in, in the long term, uh, especially as a writer. But, you know, the, the, just the final point there on the, the element of courage, I think that the for pastors specifically, that the writing process has definitely made me a more efficient pastor. I think I work very hard at not wasting words. And probably one of the most one of the most encouraging observations I've ever heard someone say about my preaching is this sweet dear lady who said, you know, you probably hear these kinds of things on a Sunday morning, you know, good sermon pastor. But this lady said to me, there was not a wasted word in this sermon. Yeah. And I thought that's what I've been working towards. 
I've been working towards using words efficiently, economically, and that has been because of the courage that I've developed in the writing process. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's not a courage that is only there to make enemies, but it's a courage to elevate the general sentiment that a lot of people have, and it allows them to speak that language more coherently and in some ways more sophisticated, you know? I think the political, the political world falls into that kind of dichotomy, right? You either are um, fanatically and meme-like about conservatism or fanatically meme-like about leftism. Yeah. But what if the conservative voice was able to articulate our vision in a way that was more attractive? Do you think that could bring the, the leftist guy on the other side to accept or at least to view it us with a with more pleasant eyes than before. I, I think that does the work. I think that that does work. I think it has proven to work. And um, I think that's one dimension of the courage of, of writing and teaching that can be very effective in our age where words have in some ways not only lost their meaning, but words are no longer considered to be relevant for discourse. And we writers and teachers and preachers need to restore that vision of uh, not to be too flippant about it, but the sanctity of language. Yeah. And we need to bring sort of restore that vision again to the uh, the modern evangelical landscape. Yeah, and use controversy well. I had a friend who was very Calvinistic, went to a Baptist Baptist, went to a Baptist church, and he found himself in hot water because the folks in the congregation weren't Calvinistic. And we talked afterwards and I said, you know, what I've always found helpful in catechesis is if you have something that you think will be controversial, then you think it's biblical, you just present scripture very plainly and kind of move on and just say, well, here's Augustine's position, here's what the Bible teaches and move on. But then when you have something you think is very important, but people would be disinclined to really lean into, uh, like say the divinity and humanity of Christ, you really build up and work up. Now, what I'm about to say is insane, but you know, God became a zygote in this woman, Mary, and really build up and use controversy wisely. Writing is the exact same way use controversy drama flair for the moments you really think it's important and then assume some controversial things and say so these are just kind of givens of the argument and i find people will be kind of shaken by that because mm -hmm. it will cause them to assume things perhaps they hadn't before and then also um, re-examine things that maybe they took for granted yeah, I've, you know, I've always felt that the the role of that I have as a pastor and counselor and, and writer and all that is to uh, be able to direct people to new ways of thinking about an issue they have considered many times, Yeah, but uh, bringing them into new categories. This is why I think John Frame is just very fruitful, because you have your, your normative perspective. This is how the scriptures, this is what it says. And then you have your situational perspective. Here is its context. And then you have its existential perspective. Here is its direct application. Very often, writers and preachers stick only to the normative, right? And, and even, by the way, you even hear this, this might be a critique within our own circles here, but you even hear this among pastors, you know? All we want to say is what the Bible says. I said, well, I love the nobility of that thought, but if that's the case, you're gonna be left only with what the Bible says. Yeah. And the scriptures are given for interpretation and for direct application. And so that kind of nobility suddenly becomes 
really uh, pious subjectivism when you think about it, because you can tell me what the Bible says, but if you put four people in the same room, they're going to have four different interpretations of John 3.16. And so the pastor's role, the writer's role is to be able to convey the scriptural authority in a way uh, that is new, that, that, that covers perspectives you haven't contemplated yet. And in the counseling room, a man and a woman may be at odds with one another because they're looking at things only from one perspective. Yeah. And suddenly the minister or the writer comes along and says, have you ever contemplated this about your marriage? And that's the kind of aha moment that we live for in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Anyhow, this is a conversation that could go on for a long time. I love talking with you about any subject, but the writing is definitely, a, I know, very near to our hearts. Uh, Dustin, just out of curiosity, any um, name me a couple of projects you have in mind, writing projects that are coming up for you? Yeah, you know, I have an article in uh, Preaching Magazine this uh, summer, which got me sort of thinking about the role of catechesis and preaching. Uh, so I'm working on kind of a proposal uh, for a book called The Preacher's Catechist, thinking through um, how do you use preaching and sort of a, a, what's the role of teaching the rule of faith and the preaching event. So I'm working on that. And then we've mentioned Peter Lightheart. He's editing a, sort of a popularized version of my dissertation, and that is uh, due about three weeks ago. So no matter what I'm late <laughs> at this point, you know, whenever it happens, it, it happens. What about you? What are you working on? Listen, I'll be happy to talk to Dr. Lightheart and give you a little extra, a little extra leeway. I am. Um, I have a couple of essays. One is for a uh, seminary theological journal on the what I call the the plague of individualism in uh, in relationship to the church today, and then another essay for the Center for Cultural Leadership, which is headed by our, our beloved friend uh, Andrew Sandlin, and I think it's. Uh, to be part of a larger symposium. And again, the topic will probably cover um, some conversation on the, the detriment of individualism and mm. in modern biblical interpretation. Those are kind of two heavy things I have uh, on the horizon, like within the next three weeks and, uh, and several other things that are, we are, we're both, um, uh, we, we both set our net really, really far and and there's a lot of people who have wonderful plans for our writing lives. And so they're going to take advantage of that. And so yeah. I'm eager to take as many opportunities as possible. But uh, it's been a joy to talk to you, Dustin. And we hope we can continue this conversation another time, my friend. Thank you for enjoying us here at Hyperion Commentary. <laughs>